Amen. So um, what I said last week is when we look at the plagues in Egypt, what we're seeing is actually three groups of three plagues and a Passover. So it's like the Passover is the punctuation, the major point over it. But the way Moses wrote the three plagues, or the plagues is they're grouped into threes. And so I don't know if you remember last week, I said the first one is always the most detailed, and it always starts with go out to Pharaoh, and it's in the morning. The second one is, uh, is another encounter with Pharaoh, and the third one is very short. So it's like he does this, and, and the same pattern is repeated through all three groups. Uh, so what we did last week is we looked at the, last, the, the second and the third plague, and then at the end we backed up and put them all together and said, what's going on in this group of plagues? So what I'd like to do this morning is kind of recap last week because, first of all, it's important for what we're going to see this week. It, it, please, it, it feeds right into it. But also, I think I did a really bad job last week. <laughs> I felt really nervous about it because this was just such a big topic, and so I think I kind of bungled it. So what I'd like to do is just kind of summarize it really quick, and then we'll start into the next set of plagues, the, the, uh, the, the fourth plague. So the way to understand those three, the, the, the first group of three plagues, is there is a relation between them. There, there's a theme that God is doing there. And so it kind of brings up the question, well, what, why, why ten plagues? why these particular plagues and what's going on. And one of the answers is from chapter 12, we hear that God is judging not just Egypt, but he's also judging Egypt's gods. And so for, uh, so for some preachers, they, they look at the 10 plagues and they find a god, an Egyptian god in each one. And some places it's really obvious, in other places it's really a stretch to do that. So what I've done is I've tried to resisting that. Instead I'm saying, well, maybe God is doing something else with these plagues, and, and maybe he's doing something else by having Moses group them the way he did in the storytelling. Um, so what I think is going on is, is God is doing two things. It, it's not just judgment, it is judgment. Scriptures are really clear, this is judgment. But God's purpose is always justice and mercy, judgment and deliverance. And so one of the things he's doing by bringing these plagues on Egypt is he is actually judging Egypt and their gods. They are suffering, and he's humiliating their gods. That is actually happening. But the other thing that's hard for us to see, uh, because it's not quite always so obvious, is that he's also proclaiming mercy. And I think that'll come out really well this week. So let me recount last week again just to get our, our minds set, and then we'll march forward. So if we look at the three first plagues, but backwards... So we'll start with the third, second, and then the first. I think you'll begin to see how this, this fits together and, and it all lines up. So the, the third one was gnats. I, I said the Hebrew was just little flying things. We don't know exactly what kind of bugs it was, but there were bug, bugs all over Egypt. They filled everything. They were everywhere. It says they were, they were on man and beast. They were in Pharaoh's house. They were all over the place. But how did that come about? How did God initiate that judgment on, it, on Egypt? He told Aaron, take that staff that's in your hand and strike the dust of the earth. And it said that the, all of the dust of the earth in Egypt became flies. And, and so that was that, that third um, plague. Now, at the time I said it couldn't have been all the dust because what would be left if it all turned into flies? It would be a big rocky hole in the ground. There, there wouldn't be anything left. So maybe what Moses is saying by the dust turned into flies, and, and other preachers have said this too, is maybe what he's saying is it became like the dust of the earth. So he struck the dust of the earth, and flies as numerous as the dust of the earth swarmed into Egypt and just were everywhere. 
and just took over. And then what I also said was, well, Moses has used that term dust of the earth previously in, in a very specific setting. When God is making a covenant with Abraham, he promised Abraham, I will make your children as the dust of the earth. If, they, if the dust of the earth can be counted, so will your children be. And then he repeats that again. You know, the famous story about Jacob with the ladder over him and, and the dream of angels ascending and descending. At that point, God repeats that same promise to Jacob. And he says, if you can count the dust of the earth, so you'll be able to count your offspring. So that idea of dust of the earth is, is saying a lot, uncountable, multitudes over and over again. So I don't think it's an accident that Moses would pick it up and use it here in this setting and really not too many other places when he's talking about large multitudes of people. So what I think God is doing is he is bringing judgment on Egypt, but he's also ushering in this promise that his people will be like the sands of the earth, uncountable. And isn't that where this whole thing started? Isn't that how Exodus began? Pharaoh looks and he goes, man, these Hebrews, they're everywhere. And they become afraid that the Hebrews are gonna take over. So he opposes that, but why are there so many Hebrews? Is it just their hardy breeding stock? No, it's because God is being faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham. He's multiplying them like the sands of the sea. So when Pharaoh looks out, he sees the Hebrews multiplying. He's afraid. He says, I got to shut this down. Let's enslave them. That'll slow it down. He's not opposing Israel as much as he is opposing God because this is God's covenant purpose. So it, it, the, the third plague answers that beginning of this problem is the problem is there are too many Hebrews. And God's like, oh, yeah, wait, there are going to be a lot more of my people. So that was the third plague. Why does he send gnats in? I mean, why, why a bunch of flies? Because what he wants is he's trying to get that, that dust of the earth, his people out of Egypt, and Pharaoh will not let them go. So he's sending in a bunch of flies. If you won't let my people out, I'm sending this in. And it's kind of this back and forth. It, it pictures not only judgment, but promise. And so now let's back up to the second one. The second one was frogs. In that one, uh, Aaron stretches his hand out over the waters of Egypt, and frogs just teem. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. And they get into everything, into kneading bowls, into ovens, into Pharaoh's house, even into Pharaoh's bed. They're just everywhere. And what I said was it's not just an annoyance. It's not just like they're, they're trouble. It's like if you don't have food today, you don't eat tonight. So if these frogs are getting into to kneading bowls, um, you might not be able to eat if they've contaminated your food. The, the cycle between when you harvest and when you eat was very short. They didn't have supermarkets. So it wasn't just an annoyance, it was a threat also. So what does the frogs have to do with this? Why, why frogs? Isn't that kind of a strange thing to do? Well, frogs were well known to Egypt. They, they live on the Nile. There's plenty of frogs in the Nile. Um, but one of the things about the frogs for the Egyptians was it was a symbol of fertility because frogs breed like rabbits, or frogs. There, there's a lot of them. Uh, it was a symbol of fertility. As a matter of fact, there was a goddess named Hecat who was the goddess of fertility. She was one of the goddesses of the Nile. So when the Nile went into flood stages, the waters would rise up. It would deposit silt across the land. And then when the Nile went back down, the, the land would be really fertile. And so they would plant there, and they'd have wonderful crops. So she was a fertility goddess. But by the time the exodus happens, she had become more associated with childbirth. As a matter of fact, later stages of childbirth. Um, there's a theory that she might have been like the goddess of the midwife by the time of the Exodus. Does midwife sound familiar? 
That was the next thing Pharaoh tried. He said, well, I can't make them stop growing by enslaving them, so you Hebrew midwives, come here. If you see a boy, kill him. As soon as he's born, kill him. So that was Pharaoh's next opposition to God's promise. God's covenant purpose in Israel was to multiply them, and he's offering to have the midwives kill the babies. So the frog now shows up. The symbol of, of the midwife, the symbol of fertility, the symbol of childbirth, now floods into the land. It's a judgment on, on Egypt, but it's also a promise. I will preserve my people. I will take care of them. I am multiplying them, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. So you have frogs. If you won't let my people go, I'll send frogs in on you because I want to draw my people out. And then the, the first one was the blood in the Nile. The, the, uh, Aaron holds his staff out over the Nile, and all the water and the tributaries and the pools and everything turn into blood. Um, at the time, we said we we're not sure what that meant. It could have been algae bloom. It could have been um, mud from uh, Ethiopia flowing down the river, which would turn it kind of red. It could have been actually physical blood, and, and it turned into that. But there's another judgment, because when Pharaoh is afraid of the Israelites multiplying too much, and he asks the midwives to kill the babies, and that doesn't work, what's his next step? If you see a Hebrew child, throw him in the Nile, drown him. And so where does God go next? To the Nile. He fills it with blood. And when we looked at the, um, that first plague, I said, that river of blood is a threat and a promise also. Because a river of blood we see in the book of Revelation as judgment. People are thrown into the wine press of God's fury and stomped. And a river of blood flows out of it as deep as a horse's bridle for miles. So there's this threat of judgment. But the threat of judgment always ca also carries the promise of redemption. We are redeemed by the blood. The reason it has to be blood is because we're redeemed from judgment. So now God moves to the Nile and he, he, he strikes not only their source of power and economy and, and food, but also that symbol of who Egypt is. Without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. Nobody would live there. It'd be a big dust bowl. So God strikes that, but he does it again with the threat of judgment and the hope of the promise of redemption. Blood, shed will, be, blood will be shed for what you've done, be it yours or somebody else's. So that was that first picture. Is it, it has to do with God's covenant promise to multiply his people. And when he goes to, to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh resists, God produces on him judgment, but also offers the hope of redemption too. So that was the summary of that first group of three. So now the next group, or the next one, we'll, we'll start with one, and then next week we'll probably do the, the remaining two and gather them up. Get used to that, because I have a feeling that's going to be the pattern for the plagues until we get to the Passover. So it is this promise of judgment and a promise of deliverance. So we don't want to lose, when we're looking at God's justice, we don't want to miss his mercy. The, the, in the midst of judgment is a promise of mercy. And at the same time, we don't want to look at his mercy and go, well, he doesn't have any justice then. God is, we, we, one of the classic definitions of God is the simplicity of God. He's not a complex being with a bunch of warring different factions going on in his head. He simply is. And so for God, justice and mercy are, are just natural explanations. They're not at intention. We wrestle with it because we're not sure how to execute it. God never wrestles with it. It just is. So the simplicity of God is, he can do the judgment on, on Egypt and yet have this promise to Israel. At the same time, it's, they're not in, in, in conflict at all. 
So let's look at the next one. So the next one is uh, Moses is told the same formula, rise up early and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. We know we're back into that same track again. So that's where he's going to go. And this time Moses says, let my people go to serve me or else if you don't let them go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and the people in your house. Um, the word there is not swarms of flies. The word there is just swarms. Uh, so why do we put of flies? Why do we interpret it? And almost every uh, modern translation has of flies. Um, let me back up and explain where that tradition comes from. But one of the things I found fascinating is uh, one ancient Jewish interpretation when they read the word swarms was not flies, but wild animals. Lions and bears and, and things would swarm into uh, Egypt and, and devour everybody. That was, that was one ancient, very ancient Jewish interpretation. That probably comes because Psalm 78, when it tells a story, it says that the swarms consumed them. And so that may be where they were interpreting it is the Psalm says consume, so what consumes people is, is wild animals. That's kind of a minor reading and not really a, a, a well-attested one beyond that little uh, definition, but it does have to do with devouring, and there's different ways that they could be devoured. It doesn't have to be by wild animals. So that's one thing. Where we get the fly thing, though, is when the Old Testament, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint is the name of that translation, the word they chose for swarms was the word for a specific kind of fly, the dog fly. It's a biting fly. It's got a really bad bite. It leaves a big welt. It hurts. And so the Greek interpretation or the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew word, they chose a specific fly to de define it like that. So I think that's where we pick it up is because often we'll look to the Septuagint if we're not sure about a Hebrew word and say, well, how did they understand it? Because they did that before Christ. So that's a, you know, an older interpretation. And so I think that's where we come up with the um, swarm of flies. Um, but if we just take the word as it's written, it's just swarms. So that's what I'm going to do when I, when I go through the rest of this. I'm not going to say swarm of flies. I'm just going to say swarms. Um, I'm really slow and hesitant to disagree with tra Bible translators because they know a lot more than I do. <laughs> but I think it's important for our understanding of this passage. I, I think it'll help us. So he's, what the, the threat is, is Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send swarms in. I'm going to just, they're going to overwhelm the land. Um, another approach has been that they were beetles. And why is that? It's one of the reasons is because a little bit later it says that uh, they will be on the ground around you. And, and even later it says that it'll, it destroyed the land. Well, flying things aren't, you know, first and foremost thought of being on the ground and destroying the land. So some people said beetles. But honestly, we just don't know. Right? So let's go with we don't know. That, by the way, is a perfectly legitimate uh, interpretation method in the Bible is to say, I don't know. That, that's okay to do that. So we're going to leave it at just swarms. So they, the threat is that these swarms are going to come on you and your servants and into your houses, and the Egyptians will be filled with the swarms and the ground on which they stand. So whatever they are, they're going to be everywhere. It's, it's going to be just like the frogs. It's going to be way too much for you. So then he says something different. Now, something else is happening in this, this plague. In verse 23, he says, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. These swarms will not go into the land of Goshen. 
By implication, the other plagues happened in the land of Goshen. It doesn't say they did, it just says, now I'm going to do this. So theoretically, the Hebrews had to endure the, the gnats and the frogs and the blood. But now God is saying, he's taking it to the next step, and he's saying, okay, Pharaoh, to demonstrate that I have chosen these people who you have enslaved, now the plague is not going to hit them. I will show the distinction. I will make a distinction between your people and my people. Actually, what it says is, he says, um, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. The word division in Hebrew is actually a redemption. I will put a redemption between my people and your people. And the commentators are all like, oh, no, 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 that can't be it. That can't be right because that doesn't make any sense. It's too hard to read it that way. It must be a division. And so they you know, want to change a letter and say it's you know, amended this way. Again, I just want to go with what the Hebrew says. We don't have any text, any copy of any Hebrew text that has any other word there except a redemption. That's all we have. And so what do we mean by redemption? Well, it's not used in the terms that Moses is going to use in the law, but it does have to do with paying a ransom, a, a buying back. And, and he uses the term quite often, just not in that technical law sense. So there is a redemption that he's going to put between them. It's not just, I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to redeem them, is what he's saying. And, and, and in the midst of all the plagues, I'm going to redeem a people to myself. The other thing to notice is he doesn't say, first and foremost, I'm only going to not do this to Hebrews. He says, the plague will not hit the land of Goshen. The entire geographical area of Goshen, I'm going to exclude. Why? Because my people dwell there. Who else dwells there? It's not exclusive. It's, it's not a, a Jewish ghetto that there, nobody else is allowed to go into. It is the land of Goshen, and there were other people there. So God is, is saying, whoever is in Goshen, I'm going to exclude from this, this plague. They will be not bothered by the swarms. But it's where my people dwell. So he isn't just sparing his people. He's sparing this geographical area. Why is he doing all this? Why this plague? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Um, the, the, you heard Paul reading, and he said, in the, in the land. Well, the word aretz, it could be translated world or land. It could be either one. Um, and so um, the ESV and the King James say earth, but all the other major translations say land. Probably because Goshen was just mentioned. Maybe land is the best interpretation. This is one of those things I love about the Bible is there's these, I, I call them planned ambiguities. So tell me, is it land or is it the earth? Yes, it is. It's both. It could be either one. In the immediate context, it's probably land. But maybe in the bigger context, it will be all the earth. I want you to know that I am the God in the land. Let's take that approach first. Understand ancient Near East his, uh, theology. Gods were regional. They were a god of Canaan, a god of Egypt. They were a god of the hills, a god of the seas, a god of the clouds, a god of the sun, that kind of stuff. Yahweh steps into the middle of it and says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the God in all the earth. I am not restricted to Canaan. I'm not restricted to Midian. I'm not kept out of Egypt. I will be here, and I'm going to demonstrate my power to you with these plagues, with all of these judgments that fall upon you. You will know that I am the God in the midst of all the earth. There is no God like me. So that's why when we look at the book of Genesis, what's what the most important thing we can get from those first chapters of Genesis is if you have uh, a goddess of uh, the harvest, so Heket, let's, let's bring her up. She's the goddess of the harvest, the fertility goddess. 
What does God say in the first chapters of Genesis? Here's empty land, let there be growth. Poof, there's a bunch of stuff just grew. I'm the God over that, I created that. You don't need a goddess to come and make it come up. I decided that that's gonna be like that. The water, who's, who's God over the water? You've got some ancient Poseidon or something? Ha, I did that, I made that happen. I am the God in the midst of all the land. Pharaoh, you can't chase me out of here. You can't exclude me from your land. And by implication, that means I am the God over all the earth because I created it all. It's all in my hand. I will use it for my purposes. So that's what I mean, that planned ambiguity. Either one works. Both of them are true. So this is his purpose in these plagues. And this plague is so that Pharaoh will know you do not oppose Yahweh. He has power over everything. Therefore, I will put a distinction. I will put that redemption between you. Tomorrow, this will happen. Tomorrow, this, this is not one of those accidental, oh, of course, well, you know, the, the swarms just showed up because it was that time of the year. No, God pronounced beforehand, it's going to happen on this day. And Pharaoh woke up the next morning and wow, there's swarms. This is God demonstrating that he is God in the midst of it. And the Lord did so. Who did this? God did it. It wasn't just natural uh, progression of, um, well, there were a bunch of dead frogs, so there were flies or something like that. It's nothing like that. Our, uh, the Bible tells us this is God doing this. So throughout the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms. Ruined, corrupted, marred, soiled. Don't know what that means. It, it, you might be tempted to think like a plague of locusts came in and ate everything. No, we'll get to locusts later. <laughs> they're, they're a future plague. This is something that just ruined the land. It just messed everything up. And so that's the, the plague that has arrived. So um, just like the frogs, this is more than a minor annoyance. It, it's not just, well, we've got flies everywhere and I hate them. Uh, go away. Um, <laughs> the other morning, I, I, I looked out our kitchen window, and there must have been 15 or 20 house flies just sitting on the window. I was like, OK, that's really gross. <laughs> But it was a minor annoyance. You know, it wasn't like they were in everything. So um, it, it's not like along those lines. It, this is, they ruined the land. Those, those house flies did not ruin anything in my house. As a matter of fact, I got carnivorous plants sitting right there. So hopefully they fed them. Yes. Um, but these other ones, th this ruined the land. It was, it was harming. It was more than annoyance. It was bad. So what happens? Well, Pharaoh doesn't want this to happen in his land. So he calls Moses and he says, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Pharaoh is, is, his heart is hardened, but he's still trying to play games here. So, okay, you have to go and sacrifice to your Lord. Don't go, just do it here. So what that is, is that's partial obedience, isn't it? What did God tell him? Let my people go, that they may go three days into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to me. So Pharaoh says, well, I'm not willing to go that far. Is Pharaoh obeying? It's not obedience if it's partial. I'll do this, but not that. That, that. That's not satisfying to God. It's not God saying, I just want to sacrifice, and it doesn't matter where. That's not the command. The command is, let my people go. So Pharaoh is showing that he's willing to let them sacrifice, but his heart is not willing to let the people go. So I, I'll, I'll let it happen, but only this, this little bit. So his heart is still hardened. Well, Moses counters. Now, I think this is a kindness on Moses' part because Moses could have just looked at him and said, what did I say, Pharaoh? Let my people go so that we can go into the wilderness. I'm not playing games with you. 
But instead, Moses shows respect and care for him. He says, if we sacrifice sacrifice offerings that are abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, won't they stone us? The, The Egyptians had sacrifice. They had animal sacrifice, but they really had a problem with shepherds. And so for Israel to take animal sacrifices in the middle of Egypt and make them would be abominable to them. It would be horrible. It would be like going into a mosque and offering pork. It would be that kind of an affront to the Egyptians. And so Moses says, look, we can't even, let's entertain your proposition just for a moment. It won't work because the offerings that we make will be an offense. So he he just kind of counters it and says, that's not even on the table, Pharaoh. I think it was a kindness of him. Instead of just doubling down and going, no. He, He offers a reason. He says, okay, well then you can go, but don't go very far. So now, now he's obeying, right? Now you can go. Well, he's still not obeying because he says, don't go very far. In, in other words, if you go too far, I might not be able to come and get you and bring you back. In his heart, he has not let the people go. He has not dropped in his heart to the point where he goes, I don't own these people. They are the Lord's and I'm going to release them and the Lord can do with them what he will. In his heart, he's still thinking, no, they're my slaves and they're coming back. So he's wrestling with God, and he's not obeying. It's possible for us to have those kind of moments of obedience, too, where we know something is wrong, and we say, okay, well, I won't do that. But in your heart, you never let it go. And your heart's still thinking, until the next opportunity. Maybe the next opportunity will be better, and then I can do it. So Pharaoh is a huge warning for us here. The deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of the human heart, we can think that we're obeying, and externally look like we're obeying, but in our heart we're still treasuring that thing and going, I'm going to do it first chance I get. So let, let Pharaoh warn us here because God sees right through that. He, he knows exactly what's going on. So he says, you must not go far away. Um, plead for me. Pharaoh knows that he cannot stand before Yahweh. He knows who can, and that's Moses. And so he says, plead for me. Um, I, I can't do this on my own. Moses, God won't listen to me. I don't really care for him that much. So would you plead for me? And so that's what, that's what, um, what Moses did is he went and pled for him. But before he goes, he says, um, I know you. Uh, let not Pharaoh cheat again. So he, he's looking at Pharaoh and he goes, look, I, I've seen you have so far twice said we could go and then reneged on it and said, no, you got to stay. So I'm just warning you up front, Pharaoh, don't do that again. And then he goes and pleads for him, even though he has this doubt, this wondering of, is Pharaoh going to let him go? So is this a violation of Jesus' command to forgive 70 times 7? Shouldn't we forgive? Well, we should forgive. And I think that's exactly what what Moses did with Pharaoh. He said, okay, I'll go plead for you. But to forgive is to not say, well, it never happened. He's still looking at Pharaoh and going, I know what kind of person you are. I know what's, what your desires are. And so, yes, I will go plead for you, but don't fall back into that old pattern again. So if we have a brother or sister who has sinned against us, you must forgive them. But that doesn't mean that they get to go have the same equal access and everything again. They have a history now. And so we have to have some wisdom and say, well, is this person genuinely 100% changed or do we still need to wrestle with that? I forgive their sin. I'm not going to keep bringing it up and beating them to death with it. But at the same time, I'm going to be careful because they've demonstrated who they are. That's what's happening here is Moses has forgiven, but at the same time, he's going, don't do what you do. 
Don't go back to that. Um, don't cheat and, and hang on to the people again. So the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms. Not one remained. So Moses pleads, God answers, and the swarms are gone. How did they disappear? I would love to know a little more detail. This gets frustrating when Moses doesn't give us the detail. Did they die in the land like the frogs? Maybe that's what he means by the land was ruined by them as they're covered in the carcasses. Or did they all just like uh, catch an east wind and whoop, they're gone? Or, or I don't know what happened. But the point is, Moses is saying as multitudinous as they were, as many as came in, that same amount went back out. Not one remained. They were all gone. So there's God's mercy extended to, to Pharaoh. Um, I, I have done exactly as I've said. Um, the, the swarms are gone. Now, let my people go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. He, he keeps falling back into that same pattern. It's this external appearance of obedience, but no heart change. The, the heart is hardened. The heart is saying, no, I want what I want, and I'm going to get what I want. And those Hebrews, they make really good slaves, and they're building the buildings I want built for my glory in this kingdom. So no, I'm not going to let them go. Um, so it seems to Pharaoh like he's playing God. I just, I'll just hang on to him. But that's not what's ultimately going to happen. We'll, we'll see that as we go through there. So there's the judgment and then the mercy in retracting the swarms. What is the promise that God's making here? What's the, the promised picture of what's going on? Well, I think there's, there's three of the things that I've brought up so far that kind of touch on that, that, that explain what's going on. First of all, the land of Goshen where my people dwell. Like I said, it wasn't just a, a Jewish neighborhood that they lived in. This was an open land, and they had their flocks there, but there were also Egyptians and probably other nationalities living in this area also. And God says, I am going to skip this because my people live there. And we automatically move our brains to, yeah, the Israelites. And I think what's going on is God is saying, no, that's not what I said. I said my people, who include the Israelites. But there could also be other people in this land of Goshen who are my people who are not Israelites. Um, we tend to think that uh, when we talk about Israel or Jews, it's this, this pristine Jewish nation with no mixed races or anything. But that's just not the case. Um, Remember who we're dealing with here. Judah took a Canaanite wife in uh, chapter, I think it was 36. Who did Joseph marry? Joseph married an Egyptian. Uh, a little bit later, we'll hear about Ruth, the Moabitess, who is welcomed in. And not only is she welcomed into the family, but she is David's uh, grandmother. Therefore, she is related to Jesus. So it's always been this mix. The other one is Caleb. One of the heroes of the conquest, right? He was one of the guys that went in and spied out the land, and he was called a Kenizzite. His father was a Kenizzite, and well, okay, well, what's that? Um, I'm not sure. But the Kenizzites were contemporaries of Abraham, not children of Abraham. So apparently somehow Caleb got brought into the tribe of Judah through maybe mixed marriage. So don't think when we, when we look at Israel that it's just this pure ethnic genetic group. It, it is a, a group of people, primarily made up of Abraham's physical descendants, but really it's much bigger than that. It always has been. So this idea that the land of Goshen is where my people dwell, it's, it's going beyond the borders of just Hebrews. It's including other people. 
So that's the first thing that, that we see God is accomplishing here is that it's, he's beginning to redeem his people, which is at least the Jews, but actually many more. The second thing is that he says um, the plague is a swarm, right? The plague is, is a swarm of something. Well, that word for swarm is actually used another place in the book of Exodus, coming up in a few chapters, as a matter of fact. The root of that word is the same thing that will be used in Exodus chapter 12 to discuss who went out from the land of Egypt. It was a mixed multitude. That word mixed is the same as swarm. It was a swarming multitude. It was a, it was a group of, of peoples, not just the Jews, but a group of others. And so when we were watching that video this morning, uh, Jesus in Athens, and they were talking about the churches that are forming, there was one and they, they, they started listing all the nationalities in this church. It wasn't just Greeks, even though it's in Athens, and it wasn't just Iranians, even though they're the immigrants, and Syrians, and, and Russians, and, and all these other people. And I thought, there's the swarm of humanity right there. There's the mixed multitude. That's who God brought out. That's who are his people, is, is this group of people throughout all the tribes and nations. And isn't that what he told Abraham? I counted four times where he told Abraham, your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. It was never supposed to be just Abraham and his children. It was always going to be people from everywhere. People from every tribe and tongue are going to be blessed in this. They're going to be brought into this. So that swarm thing, that's why I think it's important that he didn't say a swarm of flies or a swarm of dog flies or any particular fly. He just left it hanging as a swarm. So I think he's hinting at that idea of the, the Abrahamic covenant. This swarm of humanity are going to be God's people. They're, they're going to come from everywhere. That was always God's desire. And that leads us to the third point. God made a redemption for his people. So how do you become God's people? You become God's people because he has redeemed you, because he has purchased you, because he paid a ransom for you, because he rescued you. That's how you become God's people. That's how we become God's people today. Galatians 3.29, you are children of Abraham, heirs according to promise, if you're in Christ. If Jesus has bought you, Jesus shed his blood for the church, for a mixed multitude of people, Jews and Gentiles, there's no distinction anymore. So when he shows us in the first three plagues that he is going to rescue a swarm of people, a, a people as numerous as the dust of the earth, that he's going to rescue them, the river of blood is there. There's judgment and there's mercy. That's what he's delivering us from, is that justice, from that judgment, by the shedding of the blood of another. We don't know what it is yet. We don't understand the fullness of it yet. We don't even have the law yet, but it's coming. And so as we look back from the New Testament, we go, oh yeah, he's going to have animal sacrifices for a period. And then Jesus is going to come, across, come along and all of that's going to make no difference anymore because there will be one shedding of blood that will satisfy sin, and it doesn't need to ever happen again. But we're beginning to get these echoes back in history. 1400 BC, God is already working on it. It'll be 1400 years before Jesus shows up, and it's been 2000 years since then. Same message, same story. God made a redemption. He bought a people with his blood. He welcomed them in. And so that's where we're at in the story is the promises it will be as countless as the sands or the dust of the earth. And so how can that be just Israel? It can't. It's not possible. God will bring others with him. Welcome, you mixed multitude. 
that's the good news for us, is this is not something that God just invented this week and said, oh, this will be a good idea, let's do that. This has been his plan all along. Even as far back as the fall, he did not intend to leave anybody out. He's going to bring his people through. He's going to make a redemption. And that making of a redemption will distinguish his people from Pharaoh's people. And so that's what he's done. The river of blood, the frogs, the gnats, now the swarms. Can't wait to see what it is next week. How does that fit in? What's his next picture? What is the next way that he's going to paint? Our God is so powerful, he paints pictures in history. In real life, he weaves together his story. The best we've ever been able to manage is movies. Not bad, but doesn't even approach the way God writes history to make his purpose, to tell his story. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, um, we're, we are grateful that you have saved and intended to save a mixed multitude from the beginning. Lord, we're, we're grateful that you promised Abraham in his seed would be the blessing. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that seed is Jesus. And so you rescue Abraham's offspring, Ju, Ju, um, um, Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, so that you may bring us the Savior, the Messiah. And then, Lord, the message is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so, Lord, thank you for carrying that same message from the beginning on through, always working to accomplish your purposes. And, Lord, we're grateful because we are the direct beneficiaries of your purposes. We receive the blessing because you have decided to rescue a people. Lord, would you lead us? Would you help us to continue in that, to walk in that message, to walk in that mission, to bring the message of hope to a mixed multitude? Um, as you bring them to our shores, as we go out across the sea, Lord, help us to be your witnesses so that you will rescue people to yourself. Um, I think we need to think of ourselves as Israel in captivity, um, not isolated off, but, but drawing people in, waiting for that great deliverance. And Lord, we ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen.